Money FM 89.3, best of weekends. This week, the U.S. announced that it is defunding the World Health Organization. And uh, on the line right now with me, uh, our regular contributor, Dr. Ben Rolf, the CEO of the Communicable Disease Threats Initiative. Uh, ben, good morning from Vienna. Good morning, Ben. It's early in the morning there, and appreciate you being on so early. And, and, and this uh, WHO defunding by President Trump, uh, what what do we know about, uh, first of all, uh, you know, what's involved with the defunding, and, and how, what kind of impact do we think it'll have? Well, yeah, it is pretty extraordinary just when we thought things couldn't get worse. Um, you know, the, the World Health Organization is dependent on member states for funding, and the U.S. is by far the biggest donor. Uh, the U.S., then the Gates Foundation, then I think the U.K., but uh, they are heavily reliant on the U.K. And uh, for Trump to come in and say they're going to cut a very significant part of their funding in the biggest public health crisis of a century is extraordinary and potentially devastating. Ben, uh, the president says he's doing this because he, he thinks that the WHO has been too easy uh, on China, I'm paraphrasing. Uh, from your perspective, as somebody who has been uh, looking at communicable disease and threats across uh, the world for many years, do you think this is fair? Has the WHO been unnecessarily easy on China or, or not holding them to task? Well, it's a good question, and it, it gets a bit complicated because, of course, we're talking about geopolitics and you know the normal kind of tussle between nation states within these multilateral institutions. You know, the thing about WHO is you, you have to remember it's a membership organization made up from member states. If you take an analogy, let's say an airlines association, it would be unlikely for an airlines association to start criticizing any individual airline. You know, they would provide critical services in terms of, you know, forecasting demand and regulatory affairs, et cetera, et cetera. But they wouldn't be criticizing their own members. Well, WHO is very much the same. And so, you know, WHO operates on a consensus model between members and it will never come out and directly criticize a number, another member state. You know, their model is to support member states. So in a sense, you know, Trump is right to, to identify that. And, and, and of course, the U.S. benefits in the same way. They won't be criticized directly either. But that's the nature of the beast. And so it feels a bit like we're shooting the captain for having a, you know, inadequate boat in a heavy storm. It's just not fair and it's not constructive. Yeah, I was reading there is something, nearly 200 member states that contribute uh, to the WHO 194, I think. Uh, the U.S. contributing somewhere between 400 and 500 million dollars a year. And, and I think that was an interesting point that you just made. It, it is, um, rather than have the discussion, hey, we don't like what you're doing, you need to change. It was just, you know, take out the hatchet and, and, you know, cut off the funding right away. Uh, you know, surely there have been disagreements in the past about what the WHO has done and how they've done it. Um, you know, what is the mechanism, as far as you know, what does the mechanism look like to, to redress uh, or to address some of those uh, issues? Well, look, I, I often think of, the uh, again, the analogy of, you know, Tony Fauci standing next to President Trump. You know, to, to say that Fauci is working in a political vacuum, that he doesn't have to consider politics, that he's just a technical guy, of course would be naive. You can bet that every day he's navigating, you know, a hundred different interests and trying to walk a line to stay in his job and get mm. good things done. Of course, the DG Tedros is in exactly the same position. He's dealing with the U.S., with China, with all of these geopolitics, you know, trying to do the right thing technically, but also avoid 
you know, getting sacked, alienating a nation state, etc. So he's in a really tough position. And of course, there's this game of past the crisis going on. Um, and, and Trump trying to take focus away from what is a pretty disastrous response in the states. You know, I've been looking at the figures today. It's very hard to see any sign of a slowdown in either cases or death. So, you know, we understand why Trump would want to deflect um, some attention from that. But the, the WHO is doing a good job. Um, they have some of the best experts in the world. And the developing world are particularly reliant on their technical support. You know, the U.S. can do this alone in a sense on their domestic response. But for the U.S. to recover, they also need the world to recover. And it's the, the developing countries, the 4 billion people that live in countries with weak health systems that are reliant on the WHO. And in that sense, we are all reliant on the WHO because the world has to move together to get out of this crisis. So as, as sort of a cutting off your hand to spite your face uh, kind of situation, you, you know, you want to send a message Absolutely. to the WHO, but at the end, that ends up potentially hurting uh, the U.S. as well. Um, you know, with that amount of money, half a billion dollars or so gone from the budget, how does the WHO potentially try to make up that money? Or, you know, do we have any sense of what the actual impact on WHO pro programs and, and the ability to, to work in dire situations like we have right now? Uh, do we have any idea how that's all affected or will be affected? Well, I think it could be particularly devastating because organizations like this, the vast majority of their funds go on staff salaries because they have this enormous staff of highly te qualified technical people. And so, of course, the concern is they have to start retrenching people um, or they have to start withdrawing support to other disease priorities because, of course, all of these other concerns that are killing millions of people a year, uh, you know, malaria, tuberculosis, all also rely on WHO support. Um, so it's extremely worrying, and you know my hope is that uh, that Congress block this, and that other organisations like the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation can come in, step up, and make up some of that shortfall in the crisis. Uh, ben, let's move on. There's some new research uh, that's that's quite interesting, showing uh, the uh, the transmission of COVID-19 is potentially happening more so in asymptomatic people. W what do we know about that research? Yeah, this is really fascinating. This is a study by Gabriel Liang and others um, at Hong Kong. They took throat swabs from infected people and found something really interesting in terms of the viral load. They found that the viral load and the shedding of the virus was highest around a day after people start showing symptoms. Now, that's quite different from SARS, for example, where the viral shedding seems to peak around seven days after showing symptoms. So, of course, that raises suspicion, well, are people in fact shedding virus even before they're symptomatic? So then what they did is start looking at the serial interval, the days between an infected person infecting another person. And now we know the incubation for COVID is around five days, and it's mathematically relatively straightforward once you know the incubation period and you can work out the serial interval, the time between an infected person infecting another person, you can start saying, well, actually, hey, look here, People must be infecting other people even before they're showing symptoms. And indeed, it seems to show that people are uh, infectious around 2.3 days before they show symptoms. Now, you can imagine the implications for stamping down on this virus are pretty significant. If people are infecting others before they're showing symptoms, finding those people and isolating them 
obviously becomes almost impossible. And it, it means that we have to really step up our contact tracing. Yeah, the contact tracing or, uh, or what about the testing? Would the testing show um, when, you know, those two or three days before, even if they were asymptomatic, would, would, the, would the test show a positive or a negative or do we not know? Yeah, it would show a positive. So the RNA that the test is looking for, these highly sensitive PCR tests, you know, they're looking for the genetic material and that would be present if there's viral shedding. But of course, logistically, um, these tests take time. They uh, expose the people doing the test to risk. It's extremely difficult to test a very large number of asymptomatic people. Now, you will want to test anyway asymptomatic people in the population doing what's called sentinel surveillance to get a sense from an objective sample of how many people are infected. But this is quite different. This goes from a kind of research approach, looking at you know how many are infected per 100,000, to actually trying to weed out the individuals who are infected in a population. That's a completely different strategy because it means you've got to ramp up your testing uh, yeah. exponentially. So it's a pretty significant finding. Uh, this, uh, this may have some implications too for, you know, here in Singapore, we've seen these huge spikes in this past week uh, with the foreign worker population. Uh, and of course, the government has moved quickly to try to isolate and get the, the healthy, the known healthy people uh, out of the way. Uh, but we are we are expecting many more positives to come in here uh, this week. Yeah, I mean, of course, again, coming back to this study, this makes this uh, headache kind of significantly worse because you know a strategy of moving out people asymptomatic, of course, is is essential. But if we believe that people are um, carrying the virus and indeed spreading the virus before they're showing symptoms, it's very hard to identify who to move out. So, you know, you can do contact tracing and try and work out, you know, which dorm had somebody who was infected and then immediately isolate all of those contacts just in case any of those people are infected and infectious. Mm. So it's not that you can do nothing. But of course, these people are eating in food halls and, you know, and mingling, etc. So... It, it does make it much more difficult to tackle. It's just, it's it's mind-boggling how you know what the response needs to look like uh, to get this under control, and and you know the the more we're learning, the more we're probably understanding that. Um, it, it, we still have a long way to go with this. And of course, uh, places like the U.S. are now, certain states are talking about reopening certain businesses tomorrow uh, and this week. Um, we are certainly, from what I know of, of this and what you have told us in the past, it looks like we are headed for um, a, uh, a scenario where we're going to have multiple waves of this resurfacing. Uh, does that Does that seem to be what you're thinking as well these days? Yeah, I think it's very likely. I mean, if you look at the challenge we have with foreign workers, you can extrapolate that to what must be happening in, for example, Bangladesh, where you have similarly large numbers of people living in close proximity. And if it's true for Bangladesh, it's going to be true for Lagos, Nigeria, and other places where you have these high-density populations, parts of India, etc. So certainly we have a real challenge, not just with, with these groups in Singapore, but anywhere where you have people living very close, side-by-side, side, weak health systems, you know, that's going to be a challenge. Now, similarly, this in a sense is just maths. Once you've got, once you know your reproductive number and you know that these people are being exposed, you can pretty much project how this moves through a population mm. if you don't intervene. Now, of course, in the US and the UK and in Singapore, we've seen that social distancing is just starting in Singapore, they've done a great job. In the U.S. and the U.K., it's just starting to bend the curve, only just starting. 
Um, but how do you bend that curve in places like Bangladesh? It's very, very challenging. Dr. Ben Rolf, the CEO of the Communicable Disease Threats Initiative. Thanks, Glenn. To listen to more great interviews, download our podcasts at moneyfm893.sg or download the SBH Radio app available on Google Play or the App Store.